You're listening to the GP Supervision Australia podcast, Dementia Demystified, a model for the practice team to learn together. Presented by Peter Silberberg and Hilton Copy. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome along to part two of Dementia Demystified, a model for the practice team to learn together. Part one covered the diagnosis of dementia and in this we'll be looking at post-diagnostic care. I'd like to introduce our two presenters, Peter Silberberg and Hilton Copy, both experienced medical educators and GPs working for Dementia Training Australia. Welcome guys. Thanks Simon. <laughs> nice to have you along. So a quick review of the learning objectives for the course. So we're looking at frameworks to better understand, diagnose and manage patients with dementia. And I think in saying that, the frameworks that Peter and Hilton have provided are, are excellent, things like autofills and the stages and domains of dementia. We're pointing you to some resources to support patients with dementia in the community setting and importantly, aiming to pitch this as a learning together approach. So supervisors and registrars and indeed the whole practice team learning about dementia care as a team. So I'd like to hand over to Pete and Hilton to take us away for this second part. Thanks very much. Thanks, Simon. And it's great to be back here again and to be offering this part two of the series on demystifying dementia. Like all good education providers, we've got some learning outcomes. And for those of you like me with a short attention span, we'd like to share the key messages right at the very start. So Pete, are you happy to run through the take-home messages so that we begin with the end in mind? Thanks, Hilton. Thanks, Simon, for having us back. Yeah, look, we really want you to feel confident and that you as a GP will be able to both diagnose and initiate care for someone with dementia, particularly Alzheimer's dementia, and that a timely diagnosis significantly improves the outcomes for people living with dementia and their carers for all sorts of reasons, which we'll highlight today. And despite there being no curative treatments currently, although there are some promising treatments under research presently, there are still other many non-pharmacological interventions that can improve quality of life. And most of those interventions, most GPs, GP registrars and practice nurses will already be very confident in their ability to institute those interventions, but perhaps may just not have thought about them in terms of applying it to someone with dementia. And maybe, Simon, as we go on, I wonder if you might reflect back to us at your leisure which of the interventions that we're suggesting you might feel as a GP pretty confident in your ability to put into place bread and butter things and ones which perhaps are a little bit more challenging and that may be challenging for registrars as well and hence the focus for teaching within practice. Would that be all right, Simon? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and just interject at any time. So as we've mentioned, there's way more material in the realm of dementia than what we can cover. So we've put together this podcast called Dementia in Practice, which covers quite a breadth of material. So if you're stimulated to learn more, that might be a place that you'd like to go to. Pete, we spoke about the frameworks of the domains. I wonder if you could just run us through that with a focus on how we use the domains in thinking about management. 
Well, we use the domain's headings exactly like we did in diagnosis. So in a minute, we're going to go through each heading and we're going to discuss with you about how to care for someone living with dementia, thinking about cognitive decline, functional decline, potentially psychiatric symptoms, behavioural change and physical decline. The things that you think about in terms of diagnosis, but of course, all those things also make a difference in terms of management. And also we spoke about the stages as one of the other frameworks that we use. For the session today, we're going to be mostly focusing on the initiation of management of care for someone with dementia. And hopefully, because you're all now so super skilled in the assessment and diagnosis of dementia, that you will be instituting management for people in stage one or perhaps early stage two. So as a person traverses through this trajectory with a dementia, the management will alter as they alter. We're going to be mostly focusing on the initiation of management, which will hopefully be in stage one or early stage two. So Pete, we also spoke about the inclusion criteria at the last session. Is there anything you'd like to add about this before we move on to the actual management? Probably just to re-highlight that it's a very useful framework and we've been getting lots of great feedback from all you about how helpful it's been. So that's reassuring for us too. I use this as my autofill at work with a few extra bits that's mainly that. And and again, you know, what you use for diagnosis is used for management. So obviously we're going to be talking about how to care for someone with a declining memory and a and declining lack of function and other cortical issues. So the other framework was the stages as we've spoken about. So Pete, how do we use the stages to help guide management? Well, we think about the person sitting in front of us and we really want to make them the centre of care. And so we really want to focus on dignity. So that's thinking about quality of life and patient-centred care. So that means talking to the person living with dementia, potentially having their carer beside them, but of course making sure you're directing the conversation to the person who's living with dementia. And then the other basic idea about the stages, again, just to re-emphasise, is that in stage one, the person's still at home and the goal is to try and maintain as much independence and enjoyment during that phase and then as things decline needs may escalate and particularly around safety and then as you progress to stage three often you end up needing 24-hour care. So Simon question without notice to you these goals of care are kind of qualitatively different to the way we think about management in a lot of other conditions what do you think are the salient points when teaching registrars around having this concept of goals of care that may transition during a person's journey through something like a dementia? Yeah, I was actually just reflecting on that. I mean, I think the point is that registrars come from the hospital environment where they're probably seeing patients at a sort of further stage, acute deteriorations or episodes of deterioration and I think the supervisor has a key role and a particular expertise in those aspects of stage one, managing the patient in the community, including access to community resources. So I think it's quite a different paradigm operating, working in the community and thinking about people staying in that environment, supporting them 
And I guess the supervisor may not feel wholly confident in managing patients with dementia, but in fact, they're probably very, very skilled at bringing together the resources that are necessary. It's all about the person and their dignity, which makes it, I think, substantially different from other areas that where we focus more on the numbers and perhaps less on the person. I think that's right, Hilton. And I was just reflecting too that, you know, you think about someone who comes in with diabetes and heart failure, and it's all about which medication to use, maybe throwing in with, you know, some cardiovascular lifestyle risk reduction. Whereas those stages really make you think about saying to the person in front of you, tell me a bit about your life at the moment. What's enjoyable for you? What are you looking forward to? What is it that you'd like to do over the next few years? Which as a GP, I find those questions infinitely more enjoyable than talking about the benefits of metformin. We're often talking about patient-centred care as a concept. I guess this is very much applying it in practice and we don't even need to particularly use that term, but this is very much a demonstration of true patient-centred care. Yeah, and we would refer to it as person-centred care, but it's just those same principles so that the person with dementia is central to what's going on. And the things we're going to offer to help them maintain their dignity through maintaining their independence and enjoyment as we walk through the five domains. So Pete, you can kick us off with the first domain of cognition. So what sort of things can we do as GPs to help a person who's perhaps in stage one or early stage two dementia, probably Alzheimer's dementia, to help maintain their cognition? There's quite a few things you can do. And of course, these things cross over. So if you think about a person sitting in front of you and their short-term memory is not that great, they're struggling to remember the list of things they need to shop with and carry out some functions of living like that. So, of course, that crosses over into things like behaviour. So there is a crossover in everything we're doing here, but I guess focusing on a thinking aspect of it rather than translating into how that thinking translates into behaviour. So just to make that distinction, we're going to do behaviour in a minute. Probably the most important one was to maintain mental stimulation and social engagement and avoiding someone being isolated and not being feeling like they're part of their community is hugely important. And getting the patient to attend potentially group sessions where there are other people living with dementia that might be in your region, hopefully, that you can refer to, and these kind of things, or perhaps they already attend groups like a men's shed or maybe a singing group or something like that. It's hugely important, and there is some really good research to show that doing that kind of behaviour significantly slows down cognitive decline. So on top of that is educating the carers, as well as the person in front of you, obviously, but not forgetting the carers and trying to reassure their anxiety about what's going on and having an opportunity to answer their questions is hugely important. Sometimes that's done with the person living with dementia. Sometimes that's done independently, depending on the situation. And you need to make time potentially for independent questions as well. Pete, if I can just jump in there, Dementia Australia, which is not us, not where Dementia Training Australia, Dementia Australia has got a huge amount of resources that are super useful for the person and their family and carers around gaining a better understanding of what dementia is and what might be likely to happen in the future. Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Hilton. They are very good. And your local PHN may have some stuff too, like our local PHN's created a specific sort of booklet online and paper version all about this, local groups you can refer to, things to ask the doctor when they come in to see you and those kind of things. So you probably have to have a bit of a look around and see what's out there, but Dementia Australia is easy to, to log on and have a look at. So now we're going into the more medical side of cognition and 
the first one is medication review. And so that's thinking about medications that could potentially make cognition worse. So these are drugs that the patient may already be taking or potentially you're thinking about giving them for some other condition. And of course, ones that have got anticholinergic properties are well known and we'll go through a bit of a list in a minute. But sometimes it can be a bit complicated and that's a good reminder that if your patient's on more than five tablets and you're a bit concerned, it's worth reaching out to your local pharmacists and considering a home medication review. And then there are drugs that potentially may target Alzheimer's dementia, specific medication, such as the cholinesterase inhibitors, and we'll talk about that in a minute, about what that entails. And then it is important to maintain and think about their cardiovascular risk management. So just keep an eye on their blood pressure, obviously manage their sugars, very high or very low sugars, affect cognition and having to think about that. I might add there though, there is no evidence that starting cardiovascular risk management such as a statin for high cholesterol makes any difference once a diagnosis has been made. But certainly if they have existing hypertension or they develop hypertension, you'd still want to treat that. And then we've got legal affairs and advanced care planning. And you made a comment earlier that GPs would be doing most of this stuff already. And I'm guessing, Simon, that most of the supervisors and the even the registrars would have a little bit of experience in doing this sort of thing. So perhaps where it's a little bit different or where people have concerns is the person living with dementia and their capacity to make a decision. And the advice that we would suggest would be that it's good for you as a GP to be able to feel like you can make an assessment of capacity around health issues. So that would be in terms of advanced care planning and how the patient may want to spend the last stages of their life. But when it comes to making decisions around legal matters, if you're unsure or you've particularly asked for advice or there's tricky family dynamics going on, then we'd recommend you get a second opinion potentially through a geriatrician or another specialist. Yeah, and one of our local geriatricians once said to me, Hilton, I can be helpful in three ways for people who have a dementia. One is to take their driver's license off them, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. The second one is around capacity, and the third one is in families where there's a lot of money and it's likely to get tricky. So they were happy to really help with that. Simon, you had a thought about advanced care planning and perhaps the feelings of confidence amongst GPs in assisting their patients with advanced care planning. It's, I mean, it's slightly a tangential topic, but I was interested in your thoughts about that. Oh, only that it is a potentially complex area. And I think like so many aspects of general practice, registrars may not have experience and skills in that aspect of care. And it is a specific element of good management of people with dementia to address that. So I think it's a point that we shouldn't assume registrars are comfortable and confident with this aspect of care and at least raise that with them. Yeah, for sure. And that a diagnosis of dementia does not automatically mean the person no longer has capacity to make decisions about their life. So that's an important thing to remember. It depends. They need an assessment of their capacity around each specific item for making those kind of decisions. Pete, you mentioned the medications. You've told a great analogy about acetylcholine, I heard you recently, and the way it works in the brain. Perhaps you could refresh us about the role of acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter and then how these drugs might help with that. Sure. Well, I've shamelessly stolen this off one of our other MEs, so it's not my idea, but I really like it, so I use it. So... The way to explain the potential benefit for these drugs to people living with dementia is to say that 
this medicine increases a neurotransmitter or a hormone or a chemical in your brain called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine helps neurons talk to each other, particularly around the area of memory. So you, the more you have of the acetylcholine, the better your memory is going to be. And that's basically how they work. And there's a few on the market under the PBS. The one that you're probably most likely familiar with is Dinepazil or Aricept. And there's some specific PBS criteria, which I don't particularly like, but you need to have a specific score over 10 in the mini metal state examination. I don't know why there aren't other cognitive assessment tool scores in the PBS criteria, but so be it. And it does need to be in consultation with a specialist. So that could be a geriatrician, could be a psychogeriatrician, could be a psychiatrist, could be a general physician. It doesn't really matter as long as they've got a specialty that can assist you. They don't have to actually have seen the patients. I have done both ways of both calling the geriatrician and talking about it on the phone because they have a long wait to get in and I didn't want to wait to start medication. And I've also sent a referral, quite a detailed referral using the inclusion exclusion criteria and the, and the domains. And the specialist emailed me back and said, please go ahead and start a cholesterol inhibitor after doing an ECG. So that's a little tip there for you. And in terms of benefit, look, if you go and have a look online at the literature of this and try and work out what modest benefit means, you might walk away with a few bruises, head bunning a wall, because I certainly did. We had a bit of a chat amongst our GRAMI group. It's very difficult sort of to define what that means. But if they do work, patients do describe potentially feeling a little bit clearer in the head. Perhaps they're getting a little bit better in terms of their functionality and remembering things. And that's what you're looking for. You're really looking for, you know, increased quality of life. So that's around independence and what they're getting out of life, what they want. So they're the sort of things you're trying to measure in terms of benefit. There are, unfortunately, a long list of potential side effects, and these are where these drugs do come into problems. You need to think about GI upset, so that could be a bit of nausea and tummy pain, but they're contraindicated if you've got active peptic ulcer disease. You need to think about heart block, which is why you generally do an ECG before you start prescribing them, and uncontrolled asthma is another significant risk. They're the main three ones that I remember, but there, there are others too that you might need to go and have a look at. I'll tell you the ones that I get really worried about, <laughs> which is, it sounds a bit ironic when you're trying to treat someone with dementia, but falls is a big one and fatigue. So I encourage people to investigate use of these medicines, but you do need to use them with some caution. And I think there's a couple of additional points. The benefits are modest and not everyone gets benefits. So they're worth a try. And in trying to work out if there has benefit, just like when we're assessing people, we ask the person with dementia, but also get a collaborative history. Same for the benefit of medication. Sometimes the family may notice that the person's more engaged or their language is better, and you need to get that information via a collaborative history. What's the rule of thumb in starting a medication in an elderly person? Do you remember? Yeah, start low and go slow. So exactly, yeah. So Dinepazil is a 10 milligram tablet, but you go on five milligrams for a month just to check it out first, mainly looking for side effects. And my other tip would be go and have a look at therapeutic guidelines. They've got a whole lot of fantastic information there around how to start these medications and potentially change from one to another and also potentially stopping them. And one of the ones there will be Mamantine, which we won't spend too much time on now because it's generally uh, prescribed by a specialist. So, um, But that's the other class of drug that works in dementia. So, Pete, you mentioned medication review and anticholinergic load. Just to reiterate that there are lots of drugs that 
can affect cognition. These particular ones are via what's called anticholinergic load. And again, as you mentioned, Pete, if you're unsure or it's complex, having a home medicine review can be helpful. Yeah, that's right. And some of them are really obvious, like NDEP and the antispasmodics for bladder dysfunction. And some of them you may not be aware about. Some of the antiarrhythmics or other drugs listed on there may have a small effect. And if you have a little bit and you add up lots of little bits, then you can add up, get quite a lot. So that's another take-home message that you might need to get some advice about. Function, Pete. What can we as GPs do to help with the second domain of function? Yes, well, there's lots. And of course, I've already kind of started talking about it by helping cognition, haven't we? But the one that's most concerning for the people living with dementia that talk to me is driving. And that's usually the one that GPs and registrars have the most challenge with too. And there's all sorts of good reasons for that. The main one being is that the patient walks into your room, they don't drive into your room. So just to point out the obvious, and we're going to give you some tips around driving in a second. So we'll we'll move on from that for now. But there's other things you can do. So I like the idea of potentially getting a home OT assessment of a person, of an OT who's got a special interest in dementia. And they can give all sorts of really good tips around maintaining level of activity. But essentially, as a rule of thumb, you kind of want to keep doing what you're already doing is what you're trying to achieve here. So if you're struggling with cooking, then think about some tips, like whether it's you know simplifying a recipe or whether it's maybe writing things down or using some other sort of tool to help you there. And if cooking's just simply too challenging, you still want the person to stay at home, then you need to look at other things like Meals on Wheels or some other way of getting your nutrition. And then also maintaining social interaction. That's hugely important as well. Yeah, and I think the point you make, Pete, about helping people to maintain things that they enjoy doing is really important. So if someone does like cooking and a well-meaning person says, oh, well, we can organise Meals on Wheels or a son or daughter or someone else will come and cook and the person loses the skills that they've had, that's not actually helpful. So it's, again, taking this person-centred approach. What is the person doing and how can they best be helped to maintain the things that they enjoy doing in a way that is safe, hence the hazards assessment? The other one there is gardening, which is a great activity because you're outdoors, you're getting vitamin D, you're getting a bit of exercise, you've got to use planning, coordination, and all those kind of cognitive skills. So, yeah, again, I agree. I say, look, you know, don't climb up a ladder. But if you've still got the capacity to go outside and garden or you need to adjust the way you're doing it to maintain that, then that's really important. I was just going to say from a supervisor registrar perspective, obviously there's a lot of potential areas to explore and encourage. And one of the issues for many registrars is trying to get everything done at once. And I guess supervisors can encourage this is a sort of case study in longitudinal care and getting people back and addressing things over time. So that's probably another really important point for a supervisor to encourage with patients who are likely to decline over time but are going to need a whole lot of aspects of care addressed. I would think, Simon, just to follow up on that, that if I was a supervisor and I had a registrar for six months, we could, in our teaching sessions, for six months, spend an hour or two a week just working through the care of someone with a dementia, you know, from assessment all the way through to management and cover just about the whole curriculum. 
obviously not pediatrics and and that sort of thing, but uh, you know specific age and and gender things. But so much is covered in doing dementia care well. So we won't get sidetracked by that because I'm aware that, as you said, things take time and all these conversations take time, but we don't want to take too long, right? So driving, I'll just jump in for that, Pete, if that's all right. So driving's complex. There's a fantastic episode on Dementia in Practice podcast about driving where we speak with an OT driving assessor who sheds light on really what GPs are able to do and taking an enablement approach to driving with the early referral and early assessment. So the earlier that these conversations start, the better that things go. Once a patient is diagnosed with a dementia, they need to notify the driving authority, but it doesn't mean that they automatically lose their license. It's just they go onto a conditional license and they're assessed every 12 months for their ability or more frequently on their ability to continue driving. Again, as we've said with everything else, a collaborative history is really important. And uh, I'm one of those old-fashioned GPs who still examine their patients. And occasionally, I'll even go out and examine their car because that will give me quite a bit of good information about their driving. If there's lots of scratches and missing wing mirrors, it says something. And certainly having had an accident in the previous two years is a, um, a bit of an indication that there may be problems down the track. The MMSE is not a great predictor of driving ability. There are tests that are better for assessing driving ability. The trail making A and B and the maze test, we're going to show an example of those in a minute. The clock drawing test, which many of you might be familiar with, we spoke about that, and the intersecting pentagons, which are part of the MMSE, you'd probably all be aware of those. When I started doing this work, I'd never heard of the trail making tests. The idea is that the person draws with a pencil, goes from one to two to three to four, et cetera. In the full one, it's down to 28. In the trail making B, they have to go from one to A, then two, then B. So it's a little bit more complex. There's also the maze test. And for both the trail making test and the maze test, there are time and error criteria for uh, assessing their ability to complete those tasks. They're freely available online too. They are freely available online. The other interesting thing around those tests and also the clock drawing test is that sometimes if there's a bit of denial in a spouse or a family member that the person has a dementia and they watch them have a go at the trail making or the clock drawing test, it can really bring home to a family member that there is something going on that perhaps they were not fully aware of. So the the one that I find challenging with driving is where the patient has enough cognitive impairment that the spouse always wants to be in the car, but the spouse doesn't want to drive themselves for whatever reason. But they say, as long as I'm there directing them or reminding them, then they're okay. Do you have any tips around that? Because I find that that's particularly challenging, that one. It's very challenging. And whenever I'm challenged, I get help. And the best help is an OT driving assessor. Everyone says, oh, my God, they're so expensive. They're less expensive than 
the insurance on a vehicle. They're less expensive than the full registration with third-party insurance. It's a cost of maintaining a vehicle once you have a diagnosis of dementia. So the beauty of the OT driving assessor is they do an off-road assessment prior to taking the person for an on-road driving assessment if they're deemed to be safe. Sending them just to the Roads and Traffic Authority testing, they do not do a off-road assessment first. And if I think someone's not safe to drive, I wouldn't send them for a driving test at the RMS because it's putting everyone at risk. So sometimes people just have to accept if they want a license, they need an OT driving assessment. That's tricky in rural areas. Listen to the podcast because we go into that in a lot more detail there. But Simon, everything takes so long, doesn't it? It does. I think this issue of driving is so important and registrars are often the recipients of people wandering in with their driving forms and they're the least qualified person to assess them because they've never met them before and their usual GPs away. And I think you made a very, very good point. And that is really, if there's any concern not to feel pressured and seek advice, get them back, call for help, get an extra set of eyes. The other thing is, what in my experience, the driving discussion is very useful because it gives you lots of insight about the person's insight and judgment. And often it's not that hard, like especially after you've given them the diagnosis and then they say, what about driving? And I say, well, yeah, come back. We'll talk about that next week. And, you know, I've got lots of patients who freely stop driving when we have an honest conversation about it. And I have one or two that are extremely challenging because they've got no insight and judgment at all for various reasons. So, you know, my other tip there is don't be afraid to have the conversation because most of the time it goes pretty well. Mostly. And when it doesn't, that's what the geriatricians are there for. So anyway, that's me being silly. Pete, I'm going to start getting anxiety that we're running out of time. So let's talk about anxiety, depression (laughs) and other psychiatric domains very briefly, because I think most people would be fairly comfortable around the management of depression and anxiety. So I guess it's about how do you apply that in the setting of someone with a dementia? Well, I apply the same principles. And what often happens, though, is that you need to have regular visits. So some of my people living with a dementia, I'm seeing I'm seeing once a month because they're highly they're anxious about, you know, they've got a relative who they've seen end up in an, in an aged care facility and they're worried that's going to happen to them. And I seem to be the only person that seems to calm them down because the spouse says you're okay and they, <laughs> that doesn't seem to work. So I'm fine. Come back every month. Let's have another chat. You know, we'll see how you're going. So it might be as simple as that, but it may involve a referral. I think one of the challenging things I find, Hilton, is finding counsellors or social workers or OTs or whoever it is you're going to refer them to with an interest in dementia. And if you can somehow get a list of local uh, referral pathways for those people, that's hugely helpful. But you're doing the same things. If you want to reach for for a medication, then citalopram, the SSRI citalopram, which is sort of the older version of escitalopram, I don't know if it makes a difference with using one or the other, but the literature, probably because that's the one that's been most researched, supports the use of that medication. And again, to start on a half dose and then slowly titrate up, they may only need 10 milligrams instead of 20. And then if they're having more significant delusions, then often you're going to need to refer to get some advice. Point on that list then is about delirium. And we're going to show an example of, a, of an action plan for that in a minute. 
And just to remember that to be very cautious about prescribing antipsychotics in someone with a dementia in case you unmask a Lewy body dementia by making them incredibly unwell. So that would be an area before initiating an antipsychotic that I'd definitely be recommending getting advice. There are, Hilden, there are some pretty strict criteria under the PBS now around the use of antipsychotics, especially in the aged care setting that people would know about. So the PBS has kind of taken it out of our hands, so to speak. <laughs> so we're not going through that today, but you can easily look that up in terms yeah. of like duration when you're allowed to start it. Yep. So, Pete, you mentioned the Delirium Action Plan. One of the goals of this Delirium Action Plan was to try and help keep people out of hospital. We know that people with a dementia are more vulnerable to a delirium and also may lack the insight to recognise what's going on. And so develop this delirium action plan to guide the person and their family for the early warning signs of a possible delirium and to try and guide them to seek assistance earlier rather than later because all of us here today will know that a person with dementia with a delirium in a hospital is not a good mix and if we can help keep people out of hospital and most importantly help them get the treatment for the cause of their delirium be it a UTI or a chest infection early so that the delirium doesn't become as florid then their recovery will be so much quicker. It, it is a medical emergency really isn't it Hilton and they, patients really need to be seen pretty much same day it's like a brain attack I know people think about stroke as being a brain attack instead of a heart attack, but delirium is the same thing. It's just potentially a different mechanism. So, yeah, you really need to get on top of it fast. If you don't have the capacity for whatever reason to see this patient, the family still needs to know and they need to go to the emergency department. So I think that information is all hugely important. Yeah, ideally the practices will, having thought about this now, may want to change how they manage. Like in some practices, any child under five gets seen on the day. I'm just wondering whether any person with a diagnosis of a dementia who has a family member call in saying, I've got the delirium action plan. I think they're getting a delirium, that there's a process in place that they get seen on that day too. And if we can keep them out of emergency, then that's so much better. So behaviours aren't as big an issue in stage one as they are in the later stages of a dementia, but the change in behaviour that is most often seen early on might be apathy or withdrawal, and that's why dementia and depression can look very similar. So appropriate social engagement really does help to mitigate against the apathy or withdrawal and again education and assisting with communication aids if someone's got a dyspraxia or an aphasia speech pathology may help with that but the management of the behavior domain is less in stage one than what it is later and as a dementia progresses it does get complex and that's where Dementia Support Australia can be helpful when people's behaviours are causing agitation or irritation for the person with dementia or their family and carers. So Dementia Support Australia is really helpful for that. It's a pretty cool service, Hilton. It's 24 hours, seven days a week. So, yeah, I let all my patients and family know about that. And you can call it yourself as a practitioner. As somebody who's not familiar, and I'm sure many GPs and supervisors and registrars, how do how does Dementia Support Australia connect to Dementia Australia and how do you fit into it as well? 
We're from Dementia Training Australia and our role is to train health professionals about dementia. Dementia Australia is primarily to support patient and family support and Dementia Support Australia is for assistance around behaviours of concern. They're independent, but all get the funding from the federal government. So, Pete, the final domain, let's bring it home with the, what we can do as GPs to help maintain person's physical functioning. Like you said earlier, Hilton, there's probably nothing here that would be new that GPs and registrars aren't already doing. But we need to sort of think about it a little bit through, well, we need to think about it through the lens of a person living with dementia. So if you look at something like nutrition, keeping an eye on someone's weight is hugely important because there might be all sorts of reasons why they're losing weight. If it's the cause is part of their dementia, it might be the sort of things you talked about, which was around apathy and isolation and forgetting to eat or losing their appetite because they're becoming withdrawn. Or perhaps they're not if they live by themselves and they've stopped cooking because they, they don't have the cognitive capacity. So, you know, measuring someone's weight and thinking about it through that lens can give you all sorts of information. Falls is just as important here as it is in anyone who is elderly. Hearing is another really good one, just to quickly mention. So hearing loss, particularly in the 50s, is a risk factor for developing dementia. And if you have, so that's something a bit earlier, but if you're in this phase with a diagnosis and you you have poor hearing, then how can you socially engage if you can't hear or keep yourself company watching the TV or whatever it is you need your hearing for? So that's really important. Vision obviously helps with all that aspect too and the falls risk. And dental check is also really important. And doing these things earlier in the stage of the illness makes it much easier. So if you've got a bit of insight and a bit of judgment and you're able to give consent to do procedures, you can imagine having a dental check is much easier than someone who's in the later stages of the illness. And the other reason why that is important too is because pain from poor dentition might be a, a cause of behavioural change or even a delirium. Take my messages, how's that? Brilliant. And I'm thinking from, I guess, a GP and a more experienced GP registrar, most of those things are things I think they're going to be reasonably comfortable managing and assessing. I think the tension lies in the maximising, optimising cardiovascular risk factors, say, on the one hand, and perhaps deprescribing and avoiding complicating medications on the other. And so it is a tricky balance. And I think with experience, one can manage that better. But again, a supervisor, I think, can give a lot of guidance to a registrar to, to get a sense of which patients may benefit from instituting something and, in fact, others may benefit from stopping a bunch of other things. Yeah, and I think the general rule of thumb would be that as a person moves through the stages of dementia, that's the Absolutely. more it goes, the less drugs that are needed. So, yeah, but that is quite a nuanced thing. So we've sort of focused a bit on who else might help. I think one of the take-home messages to really reinforce what you were saying, Simon, with this idea that you have to do it all today, you have to do it all oneself. It's not true. And dementias come on over time and the management can be instituted over time as well and don't want to overload people. But it's important to think about the whole practice team that can help. On those referrals, there is a bit of discussion in the community around consent to provide a diagnosis when you're doing a referral around dementia. And 
I think there's a pretty strong message from the community of people living with dementia is that we want to destigmatize it. And so if you're making a referral to someone, the physiotherapist or the audiologist, then certainly ask, get consent from the patient if you feel like that's needed. But putting that up front in the letter and explaining how that's impacting that person's hearing and, that, and their life is really important. Because you think about if you're an audiologist and someone comes along for a hearing test and you don't know they have the early stages of dementia and the person's very good at masking it and they might be embarrassed about it and not want to tell them, then they might be missing a whole lot of stuff. And in terms of like how they prescribe the hearing aid and the potential losing the hearing aid and all these complicating factors, if they don't know, then that's going to have an impact for the person. And perhaps to point people to the GPSA teaching plan on writing referrals, which does very much address the value of a good referral. And a good GP management plan. But really, it's just a summary of the things that we've been speaking about. And these are available through the Dementia Training Australia GP Resource Hub. And Pete has designed a way better one that is in the autofill. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, that's right. Thanks for bringing that up, Hilton. So autofill is basically a pre-designed written piece of information that you can embed in your practice software. And then in the software, you can tell it to create a word like dementia X. And every time you write dementia X, it spits out your pre-arranged information. And so I call them an autofill because that's what they call my software. And I've created an autofill around managing stage one with all the domains and so if you're part of GPSA, you can go online to the community page and download it. And it's really helpful. And like Simon and Hilton have stressed, the management of what we're doing today takes weeks and multiple visits. You can't all do it in one day. It's impossible. Maybe if you had an hour and you work that way, you could. But I certainly don't do it like that. And I think it's good. It's good to keep getting people back and seeing them because they certainly have lots of questions. And that also provides you an opportunity to re-emphasize, you know, the education aspect. Yep. So, Simon, what are your take-home messages from being at this session today? I like the commonality of the framework for both uh, diagnosis and management. I think there's a sort of a hierarchy almost of care in those domains that include the involvement of a broader team, of education and doing what one can do in a non sort of pharmacological way and then trying to you know in a sense avoid those more medicalized interventions involving other care providers not feeling like you're doing it all on your own and certainly not feeling like you're doing it in one hit we'd be happy with that pete wouldn't we so hopefully we've ticked off back to where we started and the people will feel more confident around initiating post-diagnostic care and that we'll have hopefully also recognised that many of the things that they're already doing for people with other diagnoses or other conditions can equally be applied to the care of someone living with a dementia and will be at least as effective, if not more effective, than some of the dementia-specific medications. Dementia Training Australia GP Resource Hub has got links to a whole lot of resources, including the GP management plans and some other webinars. Yep. Well, thank you very much for the second part of this series. As Peter and Hilton have alluded to, we have lots of resources, both educational and practical clinical resources that are part of this. So please avail yourselves of those.
And in the theme of learning together, we're really keen for you to promulgate the messages that has been talked about. So, Helton, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervision Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervision Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program.